Hello and welcome to Life Learnings. I'm Barry Harker and my guests today are Simon and Kristen Zammett. Simon and Kristen are parents of Cohen and Elijah. Elijah is now four and he has a rare syndrome called Fanconi anemia. Simon and Kristen are going to tell us about the impact of this rare syndrome on Elijah's life and their family. This is the first time they have told Elijah's story publicly. Simon and Kristen are involved in supporting other families in similar circumstances. Theirs is a story of resilience and faith in God through the roller coaster existence of the past four years. Welcome, Simon and Kristen. Oh, thank you, Barry. Thank you. It's lovely to have you here and to see you again. And thank you for telling Elijah's story. He's an amazing little boy and you've cared for him so well. But tell me what life was like before Elijah. Simon. Life before Elijah. Um, pretty normal. Um, life was normal. Um, you know, trying to you know pay the bills, all that type of stuff. You know, going to work. Um, yeah, very normal, very normal life. Um, we had complications with Cohen with his um, condition. You know, sort of getting to the nuts and bolts through that. Also, you know, yeah, just life was very, very normal. So, so Cohen had some challenges too, yes. didn't he? Yes. So at 28 weeks, you get some news. What was that like? Oh, it was devastating. We um, we um, went to get an ultrasound because they said I was quite small for um, how far along I was. And um, they um, found out that his heart was um, a different way, like it was turned around a different way, and um, that he only had a single umbilical artery. And we didn't really fully understand the impact of that until we um, they sent us to Brisbane uh, to maternal fetal medicine there, and we didn't sort of think anything too bad at the time. Um, and then when we um, got there and they ultrasound us and they said that um, they believed he had trisomy 18 and that we were literally told that he probably wouldn't survive much after birth, not, not long after birth, and that we'd have to go home and prepare for a baby that probably won't survive. And... We were totally devastated and um, we sort of were trying to console ourselves and hold it together, you know, getting through all the people in the hospital and and home. We were just absolutely shattered because we'd, you know, lost three before and this was, you know, we finally, you know, had another baby, which we were, you know, it was a long time in between having Cohen and Elijah and, yeah, so we were quite devastated and I just remember going home and for that two weeks in between just literally, we literally mourned him mm. and literally were ready to, that we were going to have a baby, we had to prepare ourselves and then we went back two weeks later for another ultrasound and got a different obstetrician and he said, no, that's not true, that they should never have given us that diagnosis, that we actually don't know what it is, that we will have to wait till he's born, but he doesn't believe it's... So this is, where the, this is where the roller coaster started. Oh, absolutely. So you're up one minute and then yeah. you're down the next. I mean, they wanted to bring his birth on prematurely. Yes. And we thought, well, the safest place for him is inside his mum and you know, just leave him there. And every two, every fortnight, you know, our trips began then to Brisbane every fortnight was back and forth. And what are we going to find out every time we have an ultrasound and we just... I, I, was, I think yeah. well, 
I've never held my breath for two weeks. That's what it felt like, you know, holding your breath for two weeks and getting a result and you're like, oh, okay, through, the, through that hurdle, the next one, the next one. And yeah, that was for a few weeks. That was... So just to put some context around it for our listeners, you were living at Witter, which is near Mullaney. Yep. On the Sunshine Coast hinterland. Yep, 102 kilometres to Brisbane Hospital. And you got to do that track quite often over the next few years. Mm. So you've already had the ups and downs even before the birth. Tell me about Elijah's birth at this point. Um, Well, we went down and had another ultrasound when I was about, I was nearly 35 weeks. um, And previous to that, we're having the fortnightly visits, which were measuring his um, growth. And he'd sort of, would be quite sporadic. He'd grow and have a huge growth spurt, then slow up. And um, they, I think in the end, they decided that he must have had um, IUGR, which is interuterine growth restriction, which they generally do better out than in. Um, so they thought they'd induce um, us at 35 weeks. Um, so we we went in um, at 35 weeks to get induced and, oh, I think our tank um, leaked all the water out just before we went, remember? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, it was sort of, so we had to leave that and just go. And, um, we, yeah, we got there and well, I was induced all that time until the rest because he's... Um, <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, from that point, I think it was about... Well, we got there in the evening. They started proceedings with Kristen and then um, they they put you in one of the rooms up in the Royal Brisbane and uh, they said for me to go home. They actually didn't, hadn't put Kristen in a birthing suite because they said the procedure takes... Could be a few days. A few days. And so I stayed at a mate's place in uh, just in the outskirts of Brisbane on the, on the sort of east side and... We just stayed in touch with each other through the evening and then uh, I just said, no, no, I just had enough. I was just heading towards the hospital. And mm-hmm. then on the way in, Kristen rang me. She said, are you on your way in? I feel like I'm giving birth to the child. So she's, I said, well, you know, talk to the nurses and everything. So she had. I got there. Kristen was in the birthing suite. They actually didn't believe I was actually in labour. That's why we had the issue with Simon not being there because, yeah. I mean, I had had a previous child, but because I was so far not ready to have a child, they believed it would take a couple of days and a few inducements, but it yeah. didn't. But from that point, when I got there, um, I went into the birthing suite and there was Kristen, um, heavily in labour, um, spoke to the, the female doctor, we, we chatted briefly, um, and... Then the doctor was walking out the door and she just said to Kristen, how do you feel? Do you feel like pushing? And Kristen's like giving her the thumbs up. And seconds later, Elijah was born. And uh, he had complications breathing, so... Well, they'd actually... Because they didn't believe them. I was in labour, they actually gave me morphine and a sleeping tablet. So that's one of the reasons he wasn't breathing properly when he was yeah. born. <laughs> so then uh, they hit the emergency button and I tell you, I've never seen... About a dozen people come running into a room, fill up a room. I've, yeah, it was the response was incredible, and uh, so they intubated Elijah to help him breathe. Um, there were some interesting specialists there, and all the way through that, I mean, I spoke to Kristen, and then I went over to Elijah when the the doctors were with him trying to intubate him, and I was, I asked the nurse if I could hold his his hand, and uh, yes, I was holding his hand. And at that point, I could tell that there was a, a finger missing. And uh, one of the nurses, she said to me, you know, you know that he's missing a finger. And I said, yeah, that makes him 
special. And uh, so from that point, we walked him into NICU. And um, from that point, I just made sure that he was he was okay there. He was stable. Everything was okay. So then I went back to Kristen, um, put her in a wheelchair, or the nurses helped me put her in a wheelchair, and then we went and seen Elijah um, in NICU. Uh, yeah, and uh, that itself was just a, a, a one amazing freefall. Hmm. Just that, at that one point, which, you know, did we know in the next four years that there was going to be multiple free falls like that where you get that rush where you don't know? Uh, uh, people that with children and in situations, you know, people know that situation um, when you've never experienced it. Yeah, it's, the only, it's the only way I can describe it is like a free fall. Mm-hmm. Jumping, you know, and, and not knowing whether your shoot's going to deploy or not. That's that's the, one of the ways I could sort of describe the situations. And it's not the only one. Elijah's put us through a few of those. And we're uh, going to talk about some of those during the story. So following the birth, you, um, you have a series of tests. Yeah, well, he was in the um, special care nursery for eight weeks after he was born, um, the first four weeks they were actually trying to determine a diagnosis um, because they knew something was wrong and the thumbs, because he was missing a thumb on one hand and the other one was, a th- it was a thumb but it actually didn't work. Um, so they knew that there was some, they, that was sort of the key to the genetic thing. So when we got the test back on that they told us Fanconi anemia um, and then they sort of, that was quite devastating. I still remember the meeting with that and then after they diagnosed him with that they also found that it was like every day they were finding something else wrong with him, like he had shallow hip sockets and they said, you know, he may not walk or crawl. And then there was um, the radius, the shortened bone in the radius. You know, his mm. kidney, he's only got a, a kidney on the left side. And, you know, and then we found out he was deaf, which we thought we knew one ear canal was closed and that his ear was small, but we didn't actually realise that he was actually deaf. Um, and so he was severely to profoundly deaf, Um yeah, they just kept finding, and his heart being around the other way, he's got a right aortic arch, and they just kept finding things wrong with him. It was quite devastating because Simon was wor- at work, had to go back to work, and he had um, our other son taking him to school and working, and I was in Brisbane staying at Ronald McDonald House and spending my days with Elijah and coming back to the Ronald McDonald House of a night, and it, it was it was quite... Um, yeah. Full on. We got to the point where, where there was one specialist, and um, he was the head of the department. And he, you know, like he, he every every so many days they would always find little things wrong, and they'd tell Kristen, and, and I wasn't there to support her, and I was too busy, not of my choice, but I had to, you know, like take care of Cohen, get to work, and do all this. And then I think that lasted for a three week period, and then I'd had enough, and I said, "That's it, um, enough's enough." I gave up work. Well. I didn't give up. I was self-employed, so I just stopped working for the builder and um, focused in on my family. And uh, you know, this one day, this specialist he rang me up on a on a on a. He actually even said on a man-to-man level, not a doctor-to-patient sort of privilege type thing. He said, "We got we've got the diagnosis. We did ask them. Do not r- tell us bits of stories or what you think. We want clear, decisive." Diagnosis for what's going on because this is quite severe, and and he understood that, and so he always he always restricted anyone telling us but himself. Mm-hmm. 
And then one day he rang me up and he said, oh, I've got to tell you that um, your wife's going to need support today because we've got, we've got the diagnosis. And we did. We come into a room no bigger than this probably and it was it was pretty confronting. You know, we had hematologist specialists, we had a uh, pediatrician specialist, we had a uh, head of nursing, a social worker. Um, so this is pretty daunting stuff. Oh, right? we knew it wasn't And we good. just, yeah. by looking at these people, we're thinking, you know, like, who's in the door next, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. and, and it was only a small room and... And then they, start, they they revealed the, the the syndrome to us, and the first questions that come out of my head was, "Is it fatal?" And he and the hematologist sort of looked back at me like, "Well, you know." I thought, "Well, I'm, I want answers now, not like what we're going to prepare for. We've we've been through so many months of this already. Mm. Let's cut to the chase. You know what I mean? And you know we're we're not ready for it, but we'd like you know to be forewarned. And uh, he said it can be. That was his, his exact words, was, yes, it can be. So, you know, and I remember saying to Kristen, you know, like, I mean, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I do, you know, I love the I love the Lord dearly, but I did say to Kristen one stage, I want to see how good our God is. I did say this. I said, let's see how good our God is through this situa- situation. And I was, I was hurt. I was angry. Mm. Uh, mm. Oh, it was emotionally just draining, you know, and, you know, I always like coming up with analogies, as everyone knows, I know, you know, oh, it was just, oh, I just thought, why? I can't handle this. Um, You know, I just, I can't handle it. Where am I going to find the energy? Where am I going to find the finances because I'm not working? Where am I going to, all these questions. And then the life as, you know, as a father, and then you've got the question of, you know, here's my boy, you know, what quality of life is he going to have? Mm. And, I I mean, these are questions that parents do ask. Mm. Well, that's what worried us too because, you know, as a, a doctor they have to give you worst-case scenario, but we were mm. having worst-case scenario from, <laughs> like, every specialist and we were terrified as to what we were going to take home because... I mean, we already had Cohen who had speech, huge speech delays and he had low tone and so he didn't walk till he was like only three and, you know, even talking and, and just learning. So we're thinking Cohen's got everything and yet he's got those issues. How much worse is it going to be for Elijah? We were absolutely terrified to take him home because oh, they told us, you know, that he might be blind, that we wouldn't know until he was two and, you know, his deafness, he's not been able to walk. Oh, it was really... And terrifying. Tell me a little bit more just about, just for our listeners, tell me a bit more about Fanconi anemia. Uh, well, Fanconi anemia is, um, uh, Simon and I both carry the gene, um, and when you're together you have a 25% chance of passing it on, so Cohen didn't get that, um, but yeah, it's a 25% chance of passing it on, so we carry it. Um, and if we hadn't met each other, we wouldn't um, obviously have that issue. But it's when you both have that gene that it passes on. But it literally is uh, no DNA repair gene. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's quite rare. But in in Queensland, um, Elijah's one of two children. Yeah, that's pretty rare in Queensland. Yeah, and we and we only just m- recently met the the family. And we knew them, but and we, we knew them know for, their child had We knew that. them for some time, and and we'd see each other in the hall, g'day and hi, and how's your treatment going, blah, blah, and then mentioned Fanconi, and it was just like, yeah, well, you know, like, and they knew of another child, but we didn't know, and they didn't realise it was Elijah. 
So Fanconi anemia is um, a condition where it's genetic mm. and there's multiple disabilities, but there's also... It doesn't also affect everyone the same. Elijah's on the severe spectrum. Yeah. Same with his size because... You know, he's four and a half. He's only just se- hit seven kilos. Um, he's on the like the worst so side of the spectrum. I mean, he's got all the multiple congenital abnormalities. Whereas, um, like the other child that we know, he's actually is only was diagnosed when he uh, presented with bone marrow failure. They never knew he had Fanconi. Anemia. He was slightly small, in, smaller in stature than the other children, but other than that, he was like normal. No, yeah. no missing fingers. Everything was fine. So it just depends on severity. And one of the key things about Fanconi anemia is the possibility of blood cancer, isn't it? Yeah, bone marrow failure, yeah. Bone marrow failure. And so you're facing these these um, these issues almost daily, then you get this diagnosis and things look pretty black. You don't oh. know how you're going to survive economically because you really needed support at home. Yeah, well, he was on three-hourly feeds. Um, he had a nasal gastric tube. I'd, I'd breastfeed and then I'd have to express and then top him up because he was having feeding issues because he had a stridor. And, um, That's a stridor. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, it's like he's got like a floppy airway, so it sort of collapses as you sort of breathe um, in a bit. So he was sort of getting fatigued as he was feeding, so I'd... I'd, I'd breastfeed him and then I'd have to express and top him up. And if I didn't have enough milk, we'd have to top him up with extra milk. And um, because he was so small and struggling to put weight on, I had to do three hourly feeds for like, it was 18 months and I was exhausted. It was 24 hours a day. So Simon had to be there just to help because I had Cohen as well as Elijah. It was just, I was too Tell tired. me about his first operation. That was the vascular ring, wasn't it? Because um, his heart's around the other way. Um, apparently when a child's born there's certain valves and every parts of the heart shut down and open up all these type of things and what happens this vascular ring was closing his around yeah it goes around his trachea yeah oh, I think it, you call and it, as yeah. he gets older everything gets bigger and it tightens so um, this time they come in they can come in from the uh, sternum but this time they come in from the back because his heart's turned around the other way and he looks like he's got a big like shark bite underneath his left arm and and uh, yeah, it'll be a good scar to, to tell a few people later on. And that was, so that was the first one? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that there was others terrifying went enough. Yeah. yeah, that was the first one. That one, he was only four months old then yeah. and uh, he only weighed you know, like three something kilos. No, yeah, he might have been just three yeah, kilos. And uh, that was the first one. And he, and he got fitted with his hearing aid a couple of weeks later. Yeah, oh. that was that one. And then um, then there was the hip. They tried to... Oh, I can't remember the, That oh. was... Yeah, they put him in hip spiker. Yeah, they, oh, yeah, yes, the they, hip spiker, yes. They had to cut the tendons to put him in a hip spiker because of his hips. But um, he was in so much pain on the right side because of the hip spiker, they apparently couldn't get it in, um, couldn't feel it, because he's not meant to have X-rays or CAT scans because he doesn't have the DNA repair gene. Um, to him, he doesn't have the ability to repair any damage from radiation, so they you know very cautious with that sort of thing. So they couldn't get it in the socket. Um, so they ended up having to cut the right, right hip spiker off. And it was a long, long six weeks after that with, mm. you know, not being able to move around and move his leg. He's literally in a, a sitting position with your leg up. <laughs> so, Simon, you described to me the first year as living out of the Honda. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was interesting. The, the multiple trips, the I mean, I'd I'd take Cohen to school because he was his first year at school, so I took him to school, 
Um, the poor kid would just on constantly cry because, you know, he was always with mum and then he's lumped with dad, you know, like that's no dream run, that one. So he's going to school, I'm going to work or trying to achieve a day's work, getting back, picking him up, dropping him off um, and then rush down to the hospital, spend some time with Kristen, check Elijah out and then somehow get back to home, pick him up from where I dropped him off in the evening. Uh, that lasted, like I said, for about three weeks and I just had enough. Uh, I was, you know, I'd, it was going to be dangerous, you know, sleep deprivation and everything like that. So I just thought, right, Lord, you, you know, I need your help, you know. And, uh, yeah, I like, you know, over the last four and a half years, it's, uh, yeah, it's been interesting, very interesting. Now, the second year was a bit quieter. Yes, well, the first year we had multiple appointments oh. with everyone establishing... Um, you know, trying to see where he sits in things sort of thing um, yeah. and establishing diagnosis. So we were doing like sometimes it would be two and three trips to Brisbane because everyone had clinics on different oh, days. It, so. it was even sometimes four. Oh, it was just incredible, like and even yeah. overnight stays. And and then we got to a point and we just said, you know, like he's doing okay. He wasn't in any danger. And we just started trying. We, we, we In a way, we really took control of the situation. We just said, hey, hey. That's if enough. he doesn't need it, can he doesn't we just, need it. Yeah. Can we back off? Can we reschedule here? Not that he was in any danger at this point, and then that was it. And then we just sort of started trying to have some of a normal life. And I know you were very interested, Kristen, in finding out more about the syndrome and what you could do to help. Yeah, no, we we actually didn't want to look up what Fanconi anemia was. That's one thing we've actually yeah, we never, never really never did because. That. After what happened in the nursery with all the doctors telling you worst case scenario, which is their job, and I understand, um, it's very hard because you feel like they're attacking your child, and it's you sort of become protective. Um, we just decided not to do it because we didn't want to limit Elijah by someone else's expectations, or what that, what happened to someone doesn't necessarily mean that it have to happen to you. So we just thought we won't look it up. We understood the condition, but we didn't want to go searching. But you're also well informed about the various aspects of his condition. Yes, um, but what we did is um, sort of looked into health-wise what we can do to keep him as, I guess, as healthy as possible mm -hmm. um, in, in that regard. Um, yeah. But, I mean, like, there was, there was, I mean, we were going through this and doctors were telling us they'd never seen a child with Fanconi. You know, specialists, like head of their departments. And they would say, I'd say, well, how many kids with Fanconi have you come across? You know, just, and they'd go, oh, I've heard of one. You've heard of one? What, you've never dealt with one? No. And we're like, oh, you know, where are we in this? You know, like, it was just daunting. The, the, oh, I, how many nights, you know, we would just sit there and look at him and go, you know, where, where are we, you know? But after the f first 18 months, once he, because of the weight battle, um, it was hard with the, um, tr everyone was trying to push him to put weight on and he wouldn't, I could force that much milk down his neck, but he's not, he would not put weight on. And in the end, we just sort of said, look, we're going to take the tube out because they wanted him to eat and he wasn't eating because he was always full of milk. So we just, we actually took the tube out and just prayed about it and said, you know, he's he's got to survive this. He can't live with a tube for the rest of his life. Well, he could, but it wouldn't be much of one. Um, so, yeah, we took it out and... Um, 
he started to put weight on, started to eat. So there was a few times where it went back down if he got sick or lost weight. And but yeah, we you know we kept it out, and oh, it was probably the, we had then six months of what we'd call a new normal. <laughs> it was a a quieter normal where we our hospital appointments reduced. I wasn't I was still breastfeeding, but I wasn't expressing and chew feeding. So that mm. that was good. Yeah, so we, we had six yeah. months of normality, and then. In the August of 2013, I was meant to fly with the boys down for a break down to um, my parents. Um, and mum had come up to come back with me. And we'd just been to Brisbane, I think, that day. We got back. It was a Tuesday. Yeah, it was a Tuesday. That's right. And I meant to fly out on a Thursday. Yeah, no, it was the next day. No, okay, yeah, okay. it was the next day we were meant to fly out. And um, I got a, a, a call from the paediatrician to say that. Elijah's bloods hadn't come back good, which we'd actually had done a couple of days earlier or a day earlier, um, and that we needed to um, go to Brisbane, I think, wasn't it? Did we have to go to no, Brisbane? No, we went straight to Nambour because he needed a blood transfusion. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so he, they said it looks like he's possibly having um, bone marrow failure. That, yeah, we had to go yeah, get a blood transfusion, which we did, which was a very interesting Thing to see someone's, it was quite confronting for me. I've struggled to see the the blood of someone else in a bag going into your child. That was really <laughs> um, interesting. But um, yeah, so that was the the next roller coaster with Elijah. Was mm. literally the year before um, his transplant. Was um, just every three to four weeks we were. Um, getting blood transfusions, going to hospital, getting transfusions. So he's transfusion dependent throughout that throughout Yes, year. he was mm. from the August right through to the May the following year. He was having transfusions Plus every three to four weeks. also the infections that Plus were also because he's neutrophils, which are the things that protect you from bacterial infections, um, were very, very low. Um, he was in and out. Every time he got a fever, we had to go to hospital. Um, so he ha- and he had because he's got a single kidney. He started to get he got I think two UTIs. He had oh so we're in and out of hospital all the time. So you had to keep him isolated as yes. much as you could as well, didn't you? Yes. Well, it was. I mean, not everyone does it. They were advised to to watch what contact they're in because, but it, it mainly because we wanted to protect him. But also we were fatigued, you know, being in and out of hospitals. We just couldn't cope either, and the, just the extra, extra stress. So. Yes, yeah, so he was literally in isolation from the August um, through to oh, for, it's, it's like two years, I think now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah where we've had Plus. to be super cautious, not going to public places. I mean, the only public place we really went was to um, the hospital, mm. <laughs> wasn't it? For like only two years, we, it was home and hospital. And Elijah, it's funny. Last night we stayed somewhere. Um, on the way down, and we, it was a hotel, um, like a motel, and we put him in the bed, and he goes, oh, are we at hospital? Because there's all the white sheets, and he goes, is this my TV, and is this my... <laughs> but, yeah, because he's so used to that environment. That's all he knew was hospital and home. It's, yeah, and that's that's literally been all his life, actually. He's never really had <laughs> much exposure. Tell me about the bone marrow transplant. Oh, oh. Yeah, well, that was in the November. That's, that's huge. Yeah, in yeah. the November before the May he had his transplant. The November he, um, they rang us up and said that um, it's his trans. He needs to have a transplant. And they, I think they booked it for the December, wasn't it? Yeah. No, January the second. 
Yes. Yes, it was booked for January 2nd, so we were quite um, worried what to do. Actually, initially, we actually didn't know whether we could, we would actually even go through with it because they didn't give us very good odds. They were sort of a bit hesitant as to what odds to give us. So they said it was actually our choice whether we wanted to do it or not, whereas if, if you got a good prognosis... You know, you sort of don't have much of a choice to go ahead yeah, I mean, with the child. But, yeah, so we um, didn't know what to do. And I remember after a while we um, – I think we spoke to a good friend of ours and she said, well, you know, either, either way, whatever you step forward, if God will bless you whatever way, you know, you choose, you mm. just, you're better off choosing something that as an, is an option. Whereas they said if we didn't do the transplant, he might live a year um, transfusion dependent, but it'll probably die of an infection. That's what we were pretty. Yeah, that I we, mean, we had told. specialists um, from ICU even saying that you know what they have to go through is like it, it was crazy. This is a specialist telling this. This remember that guy? Mm. The, the, um, he's basically said, you know, like you, you're going to put the child through an incredible procedure, and whether he survives and. You know, all these scenarios and, you know, we're left with this, I, you know, like we have to make a decision. And like Kristen said, you know, they didn't give him long to live, you know, uh, transfusion dependent. And when we made a decision, uh, we went ahead with it and, oh, what a leap it of faith. A, yeah, it moved a few times. It went from January yeah, 2nd because, to March. Yeah, to... the specialist, the oncology specialist, he worked in the Fanconi Institute in America and uh, he was well versed with Fanconi kids, and he was sort of heading the the, pre, the program here in Australia. And um, you know, we talked with him, and then he gave us a sheet of A4 paper once, and what could actually happen. Oh yes. And then Kristen was reluctant to show me what this sheet had on what they go drug through all can the cause, drugs and, can cause. And I basically looked at him and said, right. If the Fanconi don't kill him, the treatment will. And he said, not necessarily. And we're like, I'm looking at this sheet and you know, the, the odds every time, because prior pre, um, to transplant, they have to go through a series of tests to see. Yeah, they test your heart. The heart, kidneys, lungs, so, yeah. all this type of stuff. It's almost like the space program, you know. And, uh, you know, they're testing him. And every time, Elijah's not ticking any boxes. He's like... Well, the kidney, they yeah. did when they did the kidney function, it was the week before we went into transplant. We knew he only had the single kidney, but we thought it was functioning fine. And they actually came back, I think it was at 29% function, and that changed the odds even worse because a lot of the chemos they give them actually are like quite toxic to the kidneys. And they said, look, you know, worst case, you know, he could end up with kidney failure and be on dialysis. And then, so that was another thing we had to do because that's apparently something that a lot of kids, even with good healthy kidneys, struggle with is um, just processing all the toxins yeah. out of their body that the kidneys got to yeah. break down. So that must have been a pretty, pretty stressful time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you walk into a room, you walk through an airlock, you have to scrub yourself like hands and up to the elbows down. You wear a you, gown. You wear a gown. You go in. Everything that comes in with you either has to be packaged brand new. Um, and alcohol wipes. Alcohol wiped. Oh, the amount of tubes of alcohol wipes we went through was incredible. Um, I had the cleanest hands I've ever had in my life. Um, and then once you and the room is no bigger than seven meters by, 
you know, like three and a half metres. And we lived in that room for two months. And Kristen and I were like 12 hours on, 12 hours off. And, you know, sometimes it was like shifts. If one of us was tired, the other one would take over for a double shift and you'd be completely exhausted after that. And you're looking at a child that's taken to the edge of his life. And, and if his bone marrow doesn't take, well, he's going to pass. You know, you're living with this confronting you in your face. It's, like I said, it's the sharp end of a stick. No matter which way you go, you're going to get pointed by it. And it was, it was pretty traumatic. And, you know, and you talk to other families. Like there was in the RCH at the time in Brisbane, um, there was three rooms and, and, and they were always busy. And you talk to parents, you, you see these parents, you see them and you say, hi, and you talk about what drugs your child on, what's he doing, what, you know, how, how you combat this, how you do that. It's pretty close quarters. But you know. also ran into people who were facing the stresses of what you were going through. Oh, well, a lot of their kids had um, leukaemias. That's what we noticed. Most of the children that the parents we knew, yeah, had leukaemia, mm. whereas Elijah didn't actually have leukaemia. His cells hadn't turned to leukaemia, but it, it was failing. But, yeah, we met a huge amount, a huge oh, amount of people I mean, that are oh, really good people. You, you, had a, you had a little courtyard, a window, you know, probably, you know, three metres by about, you know, 1800 high you could look out into a you know pretty mediocre garden but then the next window was into the sort of the foyer area of the bone marrow transplant unit and it was like probably 300 mil by about say 800 mil high and you know you'd look through this window and you know whoever's in the in the foyer there um, because it was an isolated area not many people were allowed in there only family if that um, and limited staff and you'd look through this window and you'd sort of try and look and see somebody. And I remember one time there was Chloe and um, she was walking around with a... With a um, she was the girl next yeah, door. Yeah, the girl next door. She had yeah. leukaemia also. And she was allowed out. She was at a different stage of her transplant. She was walking along. She had a, uh, her um, lines and everything hanging yeah, out of her. Central lines. Central lines. And, and Elijah looks through the window because I've got him and he looks at her and he sees her with lines. And he's like, oh, Dad, like she's got lines like me. And like, and Chloe lifts sort of side of her shirt and shows him, and he's like fascinated, like she's someone, the, else, has someone else is the same as him, you know. And it was a highlight of his life to see someone the same as him with with all these lines. And well, he used to think because before he got his central line put in, he actually got a portacath put in, which is a whole other disaster. But. Um, he used to think whenever a baby was crying that it was getting its port access because they used to need all the ports to give you blood transfusion. So he thought every baby came with a port. <laughs> That's what he thought was normal. Yeah, um, you know, and even in the procedure um, with Elijah, they when they put the portacath in, what happened was there was a percentage um, of a collapsed lung, and he did get a collapsed lung. But they uh, didn't know it. But until... they didn't know, and you know, we were in hospital and. Elijah was struggling to breathe for quite some time, and then after they about... thought he had because of the floppy airways, they thought he had swelling, so they kept giving him a steroid to um, take the swelling away, which actually kept him awake for so like he couldn't sleep. He was only awake for I think it was like only twelve days, wasn't he? He barely yeah. slept, and in the end, um, his breathing rate dropped yeah. off. He went from forty breaths. Well, it was in the middle of the night. About two o'clock, and I walked out, and I said, "He just doesn't seem right." And I called one of the nurses, and I said, "Kylie, can you come and check on Elijah? I just don't think it's right." He went from forty breaths a minute down to eight breaths 
in that one minute. And once again, there's that free fall. Hit the emergency button and uh, the room fills up with people like you wouldn't believe with all these machines and everything. They stabilised him. They took us down to ICU. Um, we were in ICU. We were about half an hour out of a procedure. Were they going to give him a tracheotomy? Were they going to... Not the tracheotomy, the... Uh, um, the scope. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so they were going to do that procedure. And within half an hour of that, he actually stopped breathing. And they resuscitated him and they kept in, they front, of us, they, in yeah. front of us while we, we were there and uh, in ICU. And they were, they were bagging him to keep him breathing, to keep open the airways. And once again, at that point, you know, we're, we're in, this, in this small room with a specialist and he's telling us about palliative care and, you know, it's not worth it, let, let the little guy go. And, and, and we, we were like... You know, like... Well, they were concerned because if they gave a tracheostomy yeah. going through a bone marrow transplant, a high risk and, of infection. Yeah, and all this. Yeah. And um, and they didn't know. They said, look, yeah. we don't know what the problem is. You know, we don't know whether he's going to come back or whether he's going to come back with a tracheostomy or what. Um, because he was exhausted too, not for sleeping for that long Yeah, too. so they intubated him for five days and then after the fifth day they pulled the tube out and uh, they put him on high flow oxygen and he was fine after that. Yeah. You know. Tell me about him today. <laughs> Describe Elijah today. He's four oh, and a half years of age. He's full on, like crazy full on. He's It's like he's making up for all the years he didn't feel well. He's just antagonises everyone. Cohen teases him. He's just, yeah, he's full of being, but happy. So happy. Like considering what he's been through, you would never, ever pick it. He's just happy. He's isn't he? He's he knows. The happiest to, I him, know. to him, he. I mean, we only recently had to go to Brisbane for something, and he thought because we're going to Brisbane, he thought we're going to hospital, and we said no, we're going to go see someone else, and so we we went seeing the, the other people, and he, honestly, he's just he's sharp, very sharp, um, full of energy. He's got a bone marrow that works. He's growing for the first growing, time in a long time. Um, he has. Uh, you know, a lot he's of got a, a beautiful personality. Yeah. He's just so friendly and and happy and, and just interested. He's very caring, I think, because of what he's been through himself. Yeah, Even he at does. four and a half, he's yeah. very nurturing. And if anyone gets a cut, you know, he gets his doctor's box out. He's, it's got the most uh, elaborate doctor's box you'll ever see. <laughs> and it's not just one box, it's about three. Yeah, and, you know, he sets yeah. up all his equipment. The other day he was doing it to the dog, wasn't he? He had all his stuff set up for surgery on the dog and she she ran out the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't, want, didn't want part of that. Um he loves, he loves life. He just, to him, there's nothing wrong. He just wants to get out. He hates being cooped up. Every he's, now and again, he'll go, "Am I sick? I think I'm better." <laughs> That's what he'll say. That's yeah, what his thing is. You he, know, every. I mean, like you know, he thought that. Yeah, he just is incredible. Like for what he's been through, and then you look at him at this situation now. Um, you know, unbelievable for what he's been through. And people, when you tell them, um, they say, look at him and they go, oh, well, how old is he? And, you know, he's four and a half and he, he'll walk up to him like, he doesn't, he's not a care in the world, he'll walk up and he'll go, are you hungry? You know, that's just, that's his icebreaker. Are you hungry? And or he'll just, you know, well, what are you doing or something like that? And they're just like, whoa, you know. Because he's still the size still, of, you he's know, tiny. a nine, ten month old baby. Mm. You know, he's still so tiny, it throws people. Even wherever we go, we're stared at, we've... You know, we have to sort of yeah. get over that. But he's, yeah, no, they, um, 
because he's so tiny to be talking and, and not just, you know, he'll have a full conversation. He's quite intelligent. Mm, um, and sharp. I think he's sharp, yeah, sharp beyond his years because of what he has experienced and his um, involvement with adults. And he just walked into the studio today. Yes. <laughs> I'm Barry Harker and my guests today are Simon and Kristen Zamet. Simon and Kristen are telling the story of their youngest son, Elijah, who has a rare syndrome called Fanconi anemia. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, Simon and Kristen will continue Elijah's story. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abn.org.au Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Barry Harker and my guests today are Simon and Kristen Zamet. Simon and Kristen are telling the story of their youngest son, Elijah, who has a rare syndrome called Fanconi anemia. Simon, tell me a little bit about your background. Um, I was born in Melbourne to um, uh, Maltese parents. Uh, they migrated here after the war, uh, separately. Dad came out first, and uh, then Mum. Mum has an interesting life, a background. Uh, uh, during the war, she was uh, she was with her mum. She was born out of wedlock to a uh, English uh, serviceman. And her stepfather didn't want her around, so he sent her to a uh, a convent. And uh, as you did in 1943, and she uh, she lived with the uh, the nuns of the Jesuit order, and uh, she lived in a Knights Templars castle, and in, in Malta. And then she was a nanny for a UNICEF doctor and travelled the world. And then at the age I think of about 17, 18, she uh, migrated to Australia, and uh, yeah, it was interesting listen to mum's stories and even dad's stories of, of the war and all that. You know, living in Melbourne, i got two, one older, one younger brother. Um, yeah, then at the age, I think of about 23, I migrated myself to Queensland. And uh, I thought, wow, the sun shines up there as opposed to Victoria. Um, uh, yeah, so it's, you know, it's been an interesting time. Uh, I where, was, did you, where did you meet Kristen? I met Kristen at church. Um that's another story altogether, but uh, yeah, yeah the, you know, the Lord is good. He, he he's he's led me. Sometimes I've been willing, and a lot of times not. Um, but He has a way of of teaching me and and showing me ways in life. And uh, no, it's it's very very interesting, very interesting. Kristen, what about you? Oh, I was born actually in Gosford and um, my family travelled a lot and we moved a lot. Um, I spent a lot of my younger years in Stanthorpe uh, and then from Stanthorpe we moved to the Sunshine Coast when I was about 15. 
I met Simon at 16 and um, literally we've been together. I think we've been together 17 years now, mm-hmm. I think, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty much it for me. <laughs> okay. So with those two different backgrounds, you have um, Carl and you have Elijah. Mm-hmm. What impact did Elijah have on your spirituality, your Christian experience? Your experience of God. Oh, wow. Huge. I think if we hadn't, didn't have him, we, we would be different people. I don't, I don't even know. I think if anything, having him actually brought us closer together as a husband and wife, isn't it? It's, oh, definitely. Um, it just the way that as much as we hated it and we hated seeing our family go through what it went through with Elijah and we hated seeing him suffer, I would never ever change it because I know that through it, it drew us closer to God and made us more dependent on God and it really increased our faith and trust in God. Like every time Elijah was, um, when he was neutropenic and we going into hospital and we, the fear would build up, um, you know, because you think, oh, no, we're going to go through the whole packing and not knowing and what are they going to do? And it, it used to overwhelm us. We'd get snappy with Cohen and with each other because we were all this fear. And I think God allowed that to happen to us, increasing our faith prior to transplant because what we went through in transplant was would need so much dependence on God that, those hospitalizations leading up to it was like a faith thing. Each time we went in, we'd trust the God a little bit more, a little bit more, and it, it was. It was we were the work in progress because we we were terrified initially, and we didn't trust God uh, with Elijah. It's like we kept holding back, thinking we could protect him, but it wasn't until towards the end, just before we went to transplant, that we actually learned to surrender Elijah's life completely to God. And that you know, I used to picture. Actually, picture handing Elijah to God and going, "He's yours. You take care of him. Put, hold him in your everlasting arms." And it's the only way I could actually do it because I kept wanting to grab him back and and trying to do something better myself, which we just can't do. So you're really saying to me that Elijah's life, as difficult as it's been, has been a positive influence oh, on you absolutely. both. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And you've also had a positive influence on the lives of other people too. Because you were coming across people in hospital who were in dire circumstances, the the children and the families, needing support, frightened like you are, uh, anxious about what's going to happen next, not knowing what the future holds. What opportunities did that give to you? Um, It's like in like I was mentioned in transplant. You know, you'd, you'd see this little window where you get an opportunity where if Kristen took over a shift and then I'd come out and I'd walk into the parents' lounge. And I remember one situation, there was a family, or just just the father there, and he's got his hands in his forehead and he's just holding his head. And I said, yeah, okay, man. And he's looked, looked at me and he goes, no. You know, he was quite abrupt. And I thought, right, you've got some bad news, you know. And uh, I said, okay. I said, um, do you want to talk about it? And he said, my little girl at 10 weeks has AML leukemia. And I said, okay. And he said, oh. And then we, as he just calmed down. It was like it calmed him down in this situation. And we started just chatting about general father things. And he said, oh, where are you? And I said, oh, I'm in transplant at the moment. And I explained to him a little bit about Elijah's story. And then once I told him that, it was like it was, all right, it was like a passage to be there, like a, like a free... Or free ticket, if you'd call it, a, a pass to be in that arena, to be there. 
and and he he just opened up to me, mm. absolutely opened up. And I, I asked him his his daughter's name. It was little Matilda, and um, I said, you know, I'll pray and I'll ask my church people to pray for you. And you know, and we and we talked and and when the conversation, he said, would you like to meet my wife and my daughter? And I said, yeah, I would. And I said, you can't. We, you sort of can't meet us because we're in transfer, we're in isolation type thing. So I met his wife and, and, and daughter and had a chat with them and and I just said I'd pray. And when I went back to the kitchen later on, there was another lady there. She was an Aboriginal lady and she said, um, I heard you talking about prayer. And I said, yeah. And she says, would you pray for my daughter also? And I can't remember her name. And uh, they were from up, up in Cairns. And the little girl, uh, four-month-old, she had cancer in the eye. She was having her eye, her eye removed. Mm-hmm. And uh, every time I'd see her, she'd say, oh, you know, thanks, thanks. And that's situation. That's just a drop of the ocean to, to the amount of people that we've met and talked to. It gives you that that well, opportunity to talk well, to people. often bringing um, yourself and giving you the long list of names <laughs> to, to pray for, you know, for church and some of that because we did, it, it touched our hearts because we knew it wasn't just us that was suffering. It was it was horrible. And I remember like saying to Simon, the angels must weep in those hallways with the, the hurts and the, the horrible things that that go on there. And it's, it is, it's, it is, it's very, it's sad, very sad with what's going in mm. there. So through all that sadness, you're still getting the opportunity to support other people. Oh. Yeah, so yeah. Through the most difficult circumstances that they're probably ever going to face. Yeah. yeah. Well, we still still keep in contact. We did, we actually yeah. unfortunately just went to a, a funeral. A funeral nice. on Friday. Yeah. Unfortunately, one of the boys, um, sixteen, we um they kept in contact with Barbara. We actually, um, we spoke a lot, uh, you know, about Christ a lot to her, and we, you know, we actually gave her a Bible and she was reading it and. But unfortunately, her son passed away the other week. Um, he was 16. He had two bone marrow transplants, but unfortunately, he didn't make it. And that, to us, oh, it, was, it, it broke our heart. And we, but you know, we've prayed for, you know, Ben. You know, and ha- having, uh, if you said to me, you asked me this same question four years ago when Elijah was born about the situation. I, honestly, I I would have possibly been. Maybe angry, why God, why this, why that, and all these things. And then one night it became apparent to me that who are we witnessing to? You know, why is this happening to us at 2 o'clock in the morning? Elijah was unsettled, all these things. And it became apparent that God was calling us closer to him, Mm. to trust him Mm -hmm. and no one else. And from that point on, I think as, you know, the penny dropped with us, it was like, well, God's got us in this situation. Not, He's just allow these things to happen for other people. Because otherwise, you, the people don't. If you haven't been through the situation, people will not talk to you or open to you, open yeah. up to you at all. They will not. They don't. They know. They just don't believe you understand. Yeah, it. people. Yeah. They. That's that's the first thing a lot of people go. They say, you know, family, friends. No one gets it unless you've been through it, and that's the first thing a lot of people say. And when you do get it, and you know, we now we know our situation is like if we go here or we go there, give us the opportunity to share what God's done for us in our lives and the trust. Oh, you know, like if we get the situations down, we like, yeah, we're not, we just know that the Lord's been by our side the whole 
walk of the It's way. increased our faith as well as, you know, we hope that we've, you know, planted some seeds in other people's mm, lives that the, that the Holy Spirit can work on. Because I know even when we were in transplant, um, as stressful and as, as that was, I know a lot of the nurses used to call it the happy place because they used to love to come in and chat with us. And I believe that the Holy Spirit present was there and that they, they could feel the difference. So I just... Because it was as as horrible as it was, it was, yeah, it's good. But we had a lot of good good people, you know, with the nurses yeah. and doctors. Oh, we, we can, a know. lot of, I mean, you're like, you're in this room, seven by three and a half, and you know, you've got it. We had a nurse with us literally twenty four seven, and you know, what do you talk about? You know what I mean? You share your faith, and and a lot of people are out there asking questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you do. You look at what these kids go through, and you do question. You know, your mentality. So you can see some purpose to all of this now. Oh, oh absolutely. absolutely. We don't. We would never take it back. I mean, it strengthened our marriage, our family, our faith. Our faith. Um, you know, and just our compassion for other people. It's made us understand and more compassion other people's needs. And and if God can use that to some purpose, then you know we are totally open to it because I would hate to think that we went through it <laughs> just for ourselves. Simon, tell me the story now of Proverbs eight six. Uh, this situation it, it happened oh, well before Elijah was born. Um, I'd say about you know five years or so. Um, middle of the night, here's Simon, and I'm like, I thought it was my wife calling me, and. Uh, She's fast asleep, and I thought, well, you know what? Uh, thinking to myself, oh, I'm not getting up. <laughs> so, I, and I, and I just, I tried to go back to sleep, but I couldn't. So I got up, and uh, Proverbs eight six come to my head, and so I went to my Bible, I opened it up, and it opened up on the page, and I read it, and when I read the words, it made me very emotional, extremely emotional. And I couldn't understand why. I just would not. I just the situation in my life. Everything was going good, and every, but it just made me emotional. So I look at that now, five years down the track, and I just look at the excellence. I mean, and what it says in scripture. Read, um, read it to us. Yeah, I'll read it to you. Here, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things. And I look back at that now, and I just see what the Lord has done for Elijah. I mean, he's he's never had a good prognosis of his life. And when you like we talked before, how he's thriving, he's happy. He knows no different. He's a typical four-year-old, and he's just happy, very happy. He um, he always asks us, you know. Where's Jesus at the moment? You know, we always tell him he's in heaven building a house for him. He's so happy about that. <laughs> um, and that's, I look at what the Lord's done for us, Elijah, I mean, our family. It's just nothing but excellent. Mm. You know, it's just, it's amazing. That's probably a good point to read Romans 8.28. This is another one of Simon's. Um, Kristen had some things that she could have contributed but um, didn't have them accessible because they're travelling. And so she's going to read a second passage. It's uh, Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. 
So can you see that in your life? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we just we know that even through the horrible things that happen in this world, that God still has His purpose. You know that He's still working good even in the bad. Hmm. Simon, would you like to close off our conversation with a prayer? Most definitely. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity for bringing us here safely today. Lord, and I just ask that um, you be with the people that have uh, children with disabilities, illnesses, that you may touch their hearts that for them never to give up hope. Always trust in you, Lord, for they, the road is, is tough, it's not easy. But Lord, may you be with their children, their families, and just the support and just for the people to understand that you're always there, you will never leave them alone. Lord, I just thank you for bringing Elijah through many situations and, uh, and for the trust that we've developed in you for giving us strength to go through the darkest hours of our lives. Lord, please be with uh, the listeners and uh, may they just have extra courage and, and strength to pull through situations. And that um, we pray these precious things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Um, as one who's actually observed quite a bit of your, your story firsthand, I know it hasn't been easy, it hasn't been an easy journey, and I know it hasn't been easy talking with me about some of these things today, because I know they arouse deep emotions, but it's great to have you uh, here, it's um, great to see little Elijah just being able to walk into the studio and talk to him today after all the things that he's been through. So thank you so much for that, and all the thank best you. in the future. Thank you. I'm Barry Harker and my guests today are Simon and Kristen Zamet. Simon and Kristen have related the story of their youngest son Elijah who has a rare syndrome called Fanconi anemia. Remember to tune in again next time as I talk with another fascinating guest or guests on life learnings. Until then, bye for now and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.